This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Can't you just settle on a darn station already? You've been flipping back and forth for 20 minutes already. I can't find anything I like. These country radio stations stink. How can you even tell? You haven't left one on long enough to hear a full song. Hey, I was listening to that. Why don't we leave the radio off for a while? We can just enjoy the quiet. Maybe take in the countryside. Whatever you say. Hold on. What is that? What is what? Pull over. What? I said pull over. Jesus, is everything okay? It's fine. It's just that billboard there. It says those kids were kidnapped. For Christ's sake, you made me pull over for a billboard? I'm sorry, it's just... The photos are so eerie. It's like they were looking at me. I needed to stop and get a better look. It says there's a $10,000 reward. (laughs) And what? You looking to collect? I should have just let her keep playing with the damn radio. Can we go now? Or are you still thinking you'll be the one to find those solder kids? Sodder? You knew them? Sweetheart, everybody knows the Sodders. And everybody knows that billboard. That thing's been up there longer than we've been alive. For nearly 40 years, a billboard along Route 16, just outside Fayetteville, West Virginia, relayed a haunting message. Written just above grainy photos of Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty Sodder, A family's desperate plea for answers boiled down to just a single line. After 30 years, it's not too late to investigate. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our final episode on the Sodder family tragedy. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Some listeners have been asking how they can help support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Well, 
would usually have been a sleepy Christmas morning for the local reporters in Fayetteville, West Virginia, was upended on Christmas morning in 1945 by tragic news. Jerry, you here? Jesus, Mark. You look like hell. Did you sleep last night? Not much. I was over by George Sauter's place outside of town. There was a fire. Huge. Burned the whole place to a crisp. Sauter as in the trucking guy? Sheesh. Everybody okay? Not so much. Five of the kids were stuck inside. Never made it out. Jeez, that's horrible. Terrible. Tragic. You got quotes for me? Story's finished and ready to print. I got the coroner and the state police both on record. Anything interesting? Six-man coroner's inquest rendered a decision on the cause of the fire pretty quickly. They say it was a faulty electrical system. State police confirmed. All right then. Good work. Let's run it. On Christmas morning, 1945, the Greensboro News Record ran a small article stating that all five of the Sauter children had burned to death in the prior evening's fiery blaze. The other local papers shared this sentiment. The Sauter children were dead. The case was open and shut. However, officials at the scene of the fire hardly shared the press's matter-of-fact attitude about what happened to the missing Sauter children. That six-man coroner's inquest reported in the papers Christmas morning? Well, the inquest was headed by Justice W.H. Level and put together with the intent to determine exactly how the Sauter fire had been started and whether the missing Sauter children could have survived. Assembling in the wee hours of Christmas morning, the committee quickly concluded what would have seemed obvious to anyone just arriving at the scene— If the Sauter children had been inside the house at the time of the blaze, then they were almost assuredly dead. What was less obvious was exactly how the fire had started. For this, the committee looked primarily at two facts. First, George had only months earlier redone the electrical wiring in his entire house. And second, Jenny claimed to have seen smoke and fire erupting from the fuse box in the Sauter's first-floor office when she attempted to reach the family's house phone. For the coroner's inquest, the conclusion was obvious. The six-man jury spent little time deliberating. Before sunrise, the group had already confirmed what so many had feared that the missing Sauter children had almost certainly perished in the fire. But the jury's inclusion of one very suspicious member in particular would immediately call their findings into question. Your goddamn house is gonna go up in smoke and your children are gonna be destroyed, you hear me? You're gonna pay for the dirty remarks you've been making against Mussolini. The insurance salesman who threatened George after being turned away in an attempt to sell the Sauters a life insurance policy just so happened to be one of the six men chosen to deliberate on the cause of the fire that had consumed the Sauter family home. Now, that is some coincidence. Yeah, if you believe it was a coincidence, that is. The insurance salesman's role in this deliberation process would serve as fodder for those who believe that whatever happened to the Sauter children was something far more malicious than a mere tragic accident. The theories were simple. They asked, what was the true purpose of the strange salesman's visit? And was he sent there to intimidate George into keeping his mouth shut about Mussolini? Or to warn him of the consequences, should he continue his inflammatory political commentary? Unfortunately, the answer to all of these questions would remain unclear even decades later. 
The insurance salesman was never officially investigated for his possible role in the children's disappearance. The state police report that followed in the days after the blaze echoed the findings of the coroner's inquest. The fire had been caused by a simple electrical malfunction, though it remained unclear how much time the state police had actually spent on reaching this conclusion. And besides, aside from the absence of any remains, what reason did the authorities have to doubt the coroner's findings? The only significant development in the days after the fire came when the police located the ladder that had gone missing from the side of the Sodders' house in a nearby embankment. No explanation was given as to how or why the ladder would have been moved from the place where George usually kept it, along the side of the house. But this development hardly served as concrete evidence that foul play was afoot. The latter's odd displacement was little more than a loose end in an otherwise tidy, straightforward case of an accidental fire. For all intents and purposes, the Sodder case was closed. A tragic accident and nothing more. The following days saw the surviving Sodders in shock. George remained overcome with guilt for his failure to save the five children. Meanwhile, Jenny struggled to balance her overwhelming sorrow for the children she lost with taking care of what remained of her family. On December 29, 1945, George and Jenny agreed to start anew. But first, they needed to destroy all that remained of that fateful Christmas morning. George bulldozed the site of their former house, piling several feet of dirt over the ashes and filling the gaping hole where once there had been a home. He and Jenny agreed to turn the site into a garden as a memorial to their five lost children. On December 30th, five death certificates were issued for each of the Sodders' missing children. A memorial service was held at the site of the fire, though it is widely believed that the Sodders opted not to attend. For George and Jenny, the thought of reliving that night was simply too much to bear. They had made the decision to move on. But just a few days later, at the dawn of the new year in 1946, a startling revelation would spark doubts about what really happened to the Sodder children. A telephone repairman who was setting up a phone in their new home discovered something rather unusual. So you guys should be all set. I got the line fixed and you should be good to go in here. Thank you so much for your help getting the phone set up. It's no problem, really. It's the least I can do after what you folks have been through. So, sorry again about what happened. I still can't believe it. I really thought you only saw things like that on the news. We appreciate the condolences. There is one thing. When I was fixing up the wires, I found something. The phone line to your old house that went down? Someone cut the damn thing. Excuse me? Someone cut our phone line? Sure did. Wasn't no fire either that did it. No singe marks or nothing. Just a clean cut, through and through. Why would someone do that? Heck, I don't know. My guess is they didn't want y'all making any more phone calls. Though the gravity of this revelation may have been lost on George at the time, its importance was immediately clear to Jenny. She quickly recalled waking up just hours before the fire to a phone call from the drunken cackling woman. (laughs) The authorities had discovered the cut line just hours after arriving to the scene. They assumed it had been severed by the rising heat of the fire. 
But if this repairman was right, then that meant that whoever had cut the phone line had to have done so somewhere between the time of the laughing woman's phone call and the start of the fire. The phone line was 14 feet in the air, so whoever cut it would have needed a ladder to reach it. This could explain why George's ladder had been moved from the side of the house when he went to go look for it as he attempted to rescue the kids. George and Jenny reeled from the news that someone had made a concerted effort to cut off their ability to phone for help. Only then did they begin to question other presumed truths about the night of the fire. The authorities' verdict on the cause of the fire in particular gave the Sodders pause. If the fire had truly been caused by a faulty electrical box, then the electricity in the house should have gone out immediately. But instead, George and Jenny both distinctly remembered the lights being on as they rushed from the house. Not only that, but once outside, the fleeing Sodders recalled seeing the shine of Christmas lights glowing through the front window. Their growing suspicions were only compounded by John Sodder's contradictory statements to the police. As you may recall, there were some discrepancies about John Sodder's account of what happened upstairs before he and his siblings fled the house. In his first statement to police, John Sodder claimed that before running downstairs, he went into both bedrooms and awoke his siblings. Martha Lee, Betty, wake up! The house is on fire! We need to get out of here! But in his follow-up interview, John would tell the police that he only shouted up at his siblings after arriving safely downstairs. The puzzling part of all of this was that if the bedrooms were split into one for the boys and one for the girls, then Maurice and Louis, the two younger Sodder boys, would have been in the same bedroom as John and George Jr. at the time of the fire. Wouldn't John have noticed if his younger brothers were in the same room as him when he woke up and ran downstairs? It's certainly a fair question. Though as we've discussed, the specifics about which children slept in which room remain hazy. It's entirely possible that the older children slept in one room while the younger children slept in another. Well, that would certainly seem to make more sense than the alternative, that John Sodder's guilt about how he acted when fleeing from the fire prompted him to lie to the police. The Sodders would later attribute the inconsistency in John's statements to the police as being little more than some form of survivor's remorse. Years later, the family would still contend that John told authorities the story the way that he wished it had happened, rather than the way that it actually did. After the phone man's revelation, some of these other strange details started to pop out, and the Sodders were fairly convinced that their missing children hadn't died on the night of the fire. But the authorities were steadfast in their belief that the missing children were dead. So if the Sodders wanted to bring their suspicions to the police, they first needed evidence to persuade them otherwise. Thus, Jenny and George looked to prove that the fire couldn't possibly have burned hot enough to completely disintegrate the children's bones. In order to prove this, Jenny and George planned an experiment. Jenny would place chicken and pig bones in a container and set the contents of the bowl ablaze to see if the remains survived the fire. After burning for a few minutes, the fire tapered out, leaving Jenny with a set of very torched but clearly discernible bones. All around this time, Jenny also read a newspaper article detailing a fire that had burned a local home to the ground, trapping seven people inside. 
What troubled Jenny, however, was the fact that after the wreckage was cleared, the seven bodies were easily identified by the authorities. Jenny and George next enlisted help from a local funeral parlor. A worker there informed the Sodders that even the cremation of a body conducted for approximately two hours and at a temperature of 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit would still leave some bone remains behind. The National Institute of Fire and Safety states that an average house fire burns at 1,100 degrees Fahrenheit. And if you'll remember, the Christmas Eve blaze took only around half an hour to render the Sauter family home into smoldering rubble. All these bits of information affirmed George and Jenny's doubts. There was no way the fire could have scrubbed the site clean of the bones of their five missing children. And so, if the kids weren't inside the house at the time of the fire, then where were they? Days later, in late January 1946, another discovery emerged that would haunt the family. Sylvia Sauter, the Sauter's youngest daughter, happened upon a strange round object in the brush near the site of the fire and showed it to her parents. George quickly identified the object as a napalm pineapple bomb of the type typically used in warfare. Around this same time, investigators noted a statement from a bus driver who had driven past the Sauter home at the time of the fire. Can you describe again exactly what it was that you saw? I told you already. I seen balls of fire being tossed onto the roof of the Sauter house. Uh, what was that? Could these balls of fire have been the source of the noise on the roof that awoke Jenny from her sleep on the night of the fire? The Sodders would leave that question to the police. But what if the police weren't interested in finding the cause of the fire because they already knew what had caused it, or should I say, who had caused it? We'll look into that possibility right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. As January of 1946 stretched into February, evidence was mounting that the authorities' theory about what had really happened to the Sauter children on the night of the fire was not to be believed. Between finding the incendiary device, learning that their phone line had been cut, and seeing for themselves the results of their pig bone experiment, the Sauters now finally felt that the time had come to take their suspicions to the police. Now, George, Jenny, I know you're going through a hard time. Have you ever lost a child, Detective? I have not. Well, we lost five, so don't tell us about what you know, because you don't have the faintest clue. Right, and I understand that. But you gotta understand what you sound like from my perspective. Coming in here, yelling about conspiracies? Am I really supposed to believe that those kids were somehow removed from the house before the fire? We don't need you to believe it. We just want you to look into it. That is your job, right? It is. But just answer me this. Don't you think y'all would have heard from your bedroom if somebody snuck into your house and snuck those kids out? Don't you think they would have yelled for help or something? 
And what about the other kids sleeping in the bedrooms with them? Don't you think they would have heard if their brothers and sisters were being kidnapped? What if they never made it to bed? Maybe they were already gone by the time we woke up to the fire. I don't know. It just seems a little far-fetched. So you don't believe us? <sighs> All I'm saying is, what happened to you folks was terrible. But it was an accident. A terrible, tragic accident. But I don't think there's much good in looking for a boogeyman who just ain't there. So you won't reopen the case then? I think maybe it'd be best for everybody if y'all just accepted what happened and moved on. Our children are still out there, alive. And if you won't do something about finding them, then we'll find someone who will. The police investigation into the disappearance of the Sauter children was over. But for George and Jenny, the police's refusal to keep looking was just the beginning of an endless search that would consume the remainder of their waking lives. Unfortunately, George and Jenny were hardly suited to lead any sort of investigation. George was a driver, Jenny a stay-at-home mother. They needed a professional, so they hired two. Paying on their own dime, the Sodders enlisted the services of private detectives C.C. Tinsley and George Swain. Almost immediately, the detectives returned to the Sodders with another startling revelation that seemingly confirmed all of their suspicions. Unbeknownst to the Sodders, the police had arrested a man in connection to a crime on their property just days after the fire. A witness had come forward, claiming that he saw a man at the scene of the fire looting the Sodder's garage of a block and tackle box used for removing car engines. Could this have been the reason behind George's suddenly failing truck engine? No specific explanation had ever been given by authorities. Though some believe that the engine's failure was attributable to little more than the frigid West Virginia cold. Whatever this mysterious looter's connection to the fire, one thing was clear to George and Jenny. Their suspicions of foul play now had a face, and soon a name to go with it. State your name for the record. Johnson. No first name? Just Johnson. All right, Mr. Johnson. You know why you're here? Why don't you tell me, Detective? You remember that fire over by the solder place last month? We got a witness. Puts you at the scene. Say they saw you looting the garage while the fire was going. You know anything about that? I know some. Not enough for your liking, though, I'd think. Why don't you start talking and leave the thinking to me? The man seen looting the Sodder's garage was identified as a local man by the name of Johnson. After being identified by a witness at the scene, Johnson was quickly arrested on charges of grand larceny. But here's where things get interesting. Johnson was released by police almost as quickly as he had been arrested. Johnson admitted to rifling through the Sodder's garage, but claimed that he never actually stole anything and it remains unclear whether the police ever asked him about George's mysteriously misplaced ladder. Remarkably, the authorities never actually investigated Johnson as a possible suspect in the Sodder fire. And why would they? From the authorities' perspective, the fire had been caused by an electrical malfunction, an accident, albeit a sad one. Why would they have suspected Johnson of arson when no one besides the Sodders suspected even a hint of foul play? With Johnson's release, the Sodders' only lead was gone. 
the investigation had hit a dead end. And then came the first of the sightings. How are y'all enjoying your meal? It's fine, thank you. Damn it, what did I tell you, kids? Oh, it's all right. Happens all the time. Why don't you let me bring you some napkins and I'll- No, we'll take care of it ourselves. And I'll take the check. All right, then. Hold on a second. I just gotta ask, do I know y'all from somewhere? The kids, they look so familiar. They get that a lot. How about that check? Right. I'll be right back. Around March 1946, the Sodders' private investigators would turn up what would be the first in a long line of witnesses claiming that they had seen the missing Sodder children in the month since the fire. The first of these was a waitress at a truck stop located between Fayetteville, West Virginia, and the state's capital in Charleston. She came forward with a claim that she was certain she had served Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty Sodder and an unspecified number of adults breakfast on Christmas morning, only hours after the fire. Soon thereafter, the manager of a Charleston hotel came forward claiming that she too had seen four of the five missing Sodder kids in January, this time in the company of two men and two women at her hotel. And what did they look like? They looked just like they did in the newspaper. Sad eyes, you know? Like they just wanted to go home. I was talking about the people they were with, the adults. Oh, them. Well, they were all of Italian extraction. And when I tried to talk with the kids, they just started talking back and forth to each other in Italian and glared at me. None of them would speak to me after that. Did you ever follow up? I couldn't. They were gone by the time I woke up the next morning. The early part of 1946 had already seen the identification of a new suspect and at least two witnesses come forward, claiming to have seen the children after their supposed deaths. At the time, George and Jenny likely felt that if things kept up at this pace, they would have an answer as to what really happened to their children in no time. But unfortunately, as quickly as the investigation had started to heat up, the trail went cold as ice. As the one-year anniversary of the fire came and passed, no new leads had been found. The Sodders maintained the services of private investigators Tinsley and Swain throughout the year, and the two continued to track down possible leads and interview potential witnesses. At the dawn of the 1947 New Year, the prospect of ever finding out what happened to the missing Sodder children seemed more dim than ever. That is, until C.C. Tinsley heard about the buried heart. Somewhere around mid-1947, private investigator C.C. Tinsley was contacted by James F. Frame, a Fayetteville clergyman who claimed to have intimate knowledge of the investigation into the Sodder fire. Maybe we should start over. You're saying Chief Morris actually found remains at the site of the fire? As I've told you already, Morris and some of the other investigators at the scene found a human heart amid the debris that Christmas morning. I guess the reason why I'm asking is, why would he lie about it? Why not just tell the Sodders what he found, instead of letting them go on all this time thinking those kids were taken? I suspect he didn't want to cause them any further pain by putting an end to this little private investigation of theirs. I suppose he thought he was doing them a favor. I think you and I have very different definitions of a favor, Mr. Frame. 
The Sodders were closer to finding closure than ever. All that was left was for Tinsley to confront Fire Chief Morris and convince him to reveal what had happened to the remains. And on July 1st, 1947, Tinsley did just that. Hello? Chief Morris? Speaking? Good afternoon. My name is C.C. Tinsley. I'm a- I know who you are. You're that private investigator the Sodders are paying to look into that crazy conspiracy theory they got cooking. You know, you should really be ashamed of yourself. Taking money from a grieving family like that? It ain't right. I wouldn't have taken the case if I didn't think I could help them find those kids. Which is actually why I'm calling. I heard a story about you. Yeah? Which one was that? I'll give you a hint. It's got to do with a human heart and a lying fire chief. What do you want? You could maybe start by telling me what you did with that heart you found at the scene of the fire. I don't know what you're talking about. They never do. Well then, I guess you leave me no choice. I'll just have to head down to the police station and see what they make of all this. That won't be necessary. I'll meet you at the Sodders. Eight o'clock. I knew you'd come around. One more thing. Bring a shovel. Once at the scene, Morris revealed to Tinsley that he had buried the heart in a small box. He led Tinsley to the spot where he had buried it, and the pair quickly got to work. It wasn't long before Tinsley and Morris found exactly what it was that they were looking for. Tinsley pulled a small shoebox-sized dynamite box from the dirt. Inside was what appeared to be a partially decomposed inner organ. Tinsley quickly ran the box over to a local mortician for an unofficial analysis. The results? The human heart found at the site was not, in fact, human at all. Nor was it a heart. What do you got for me? Peculiar. Very, very peculiar. The heart you found, it wasn't a heart. What are you talking about? Morris showed me where to find it. I have it on good authority that he admitted to burying a heart that he found at the scene. If it's not a heart, then what the hell is it? Cow. Cow? Cow liver, to be more specific. You're telling me I just dug through four feet of dirt to find a burnt-up cow liver? Not burnt up, actually. There's no sign that the liver was ever in a fire. You're kidding me. I don't kid, Mr. Tinsley. I'm a mortician. Right. So, if the liver was never in the fire, then that means somebody put it there after the fact. A few days later, Tinsley returned to the funeral home to retrieve the liver and get an official statement on what the mystery organ was. But when Tinsley returned, he was told that the cow liver had disappeared from the mortuary. Well, the mortician claimed that the funeral home lacked the appropriate cold storage equipment on the premises to take care of the liver overnight, so he had left it on the back porch until Tinsley came to claim it. Why would someone take a partially decomposed cow liver off of the back porch of a funeral parlor? Was it a guilty conscience? Or was Chief Morris finally tying up a loose end? Well, the mortician posited that perhaps the liver had been taken away with the trash. The disappearance of the mystery organ became just the latest in what had become a pattern of bizarre occurrences. At the center of all of it was one man. Fire Chief Morris. Chief Morris was almost certainly the one who buried the cow liver at the scene, but his behavior was inexplicable. Perhaps more perplexing was the question of why Chief Morris decided to confide in clergyman James Frame about his deceit. 
And when exactly had Chief Morris gone about burying the liver? Presumably, it would have been exceedingly difficult to bury it while the scene was constantly being scrutinized by the authorities. But George and Jenny would never receive a concrete explanation for the chief's peculiar actions. The closest they would ever get would be rumors, shared through the grapevine, claiming that Morris had planted the fake heart at the scene in the hopes that it would be uncovered. Morris hoped that the discovery of remains of any kind would placate the Sodders enough to finally end their investigation. But Morris's behavior makes no sense. Uh, first off, Jenny denied that there had ever been any beef liver at the house at the time of the fire, so the discovery of said liver would do little to quell her thirst for answers. Second, if Morris had truly wanted the Sodders to find the box and end their investigation, why bury the box under several feet of dirt? And even had the so-called heart been discovered by the Sodders, wouldn't the fact that it was buried in a box serve as a clear indication that it had been planted at the scene after the fact? When it was all said and done, the Sodders were back at square one. The only tangible lead in their search for their missing children had, like so many other things in the Sodders' lives, gone up in smoke. Nearly two years after the fire, George and Jenny had exhausted all of their options. If the West Virginia authorities wouldn't look into the children's disappearance, then the Sodders would have to look elsewhere for help. And that's why, in late 1947, George and Jenny Sodder contacted one of the most powerful men in Washington, none other than FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover. We'll hear more about Hoover's involvement shortly. Now back to the story. As 1947 drew to a close, Jenny and George Sodder had reached what appeared to be the end of a fruitless investigation into the disappearance of their children. With the West Virginia authorities continuing to refuse to explore the possibility that the children were still alive, the Sodder family was forced to look to Washington, D.C. for help. Their first target? the head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation himself, J. Edgar Hoover. Mr. Hoover, my name is Jenny Sauter. I write you on behalf of my husband, George, and our 10 children. Enclosed, you'll find all the information our family has been able to gather in the time since five of our children were kidnapped from our home on the night of Christmas Eve, 1945. Our hope is that you and your Bureau of Investigation will be able to succeed where our local authorities have failed and help us finally receive a final answer as to who took our children. I hope this letter finds you well, and thank you for your time. Sincerely, Jenny Sauter. Rather remarkably, Hoover himself responded to the Sauter's request personally, though certainly not in the way that George and Jenny would have hoped. Mr. and Mrs. Sauter, although I would like to be of service, the related matter appears to be of a local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. Despite Hoover's rejection, the FBI did not provide the Sodders with an outright denial. Instead, a number of Hoover's FBI subordinates offered to assist in the investigation, provided they could get permission from the local authorities. But predictably, both the Fayetteville police and the fire departments declined the offer. The trail had again run cold. The case would remain on hold until one day in late 1949, George Sauter opened up the newspaper and spotted a photograph of a group of schoolchildren from New York City. 
In staring at the photo, George couldn't believe his eyes. Among the smiling children, he saw none other than his missing daughter, Betty. George drove straight through the night to reach Manhattan. But where George saw his arrival in New York as the start of what would be a heartfelt reunion, others saw it as something far more pitiful. New York Children's Aid Ballet School, this is Margaret. I'm sorry, she's not in right now. I'll tell her you called and have her give you a ring back as soon as she gets in. Thanks. Uh, hello? Can I help you with something, sir? I'm here for my daughter. Betty Sauter. I need to see her. Now! I'm sorry, sir. I'm a little confused. Is your daughter a student here, or...? I saw her in the paper. She's right here in the photo. She was missing, but I found her. I want to see her. I'm sorry, sir. What did you say your name was again? George Sauter. Now where sir? is she? You can't go back there. Sir! Betty! Where are you? Betty! I'm calling the police! As it turns out, the young girl in the photo wasn't Betty after all. The girl's parents quickly arrived at the scene upon being alerted to the arrival of a stranger hell-bent on seeing their daughter. Ultimately, George was not allowed to see the girl and was forced to return home to Fayetteville, empty-handed. This was hardly the first or the last unsubstantiated lead as to the location of the missing solder kids. One letter claimed that Martha was now living in a convent in St. Louis. Yet another said that a Texas man had overheard men talking about a fire that had happened in West Virginia on Christmas. So-called sightings were aplenty, but in terms of actual evidence as to the location of the kids, George and Jenny had made very little headway in the years since the fire. But all of that would change in August of 1949, when the Sodders, frustrated by the otherwise stalled investigation, decided to conduct a new search at the scene of the fire. For this, the Sodders brought in a Washington, D.C. pathologist, Oscar B. Hunter, to conduct the excavation. After a thorough investigation, Hunter and his team uncovered numerous small objects, including damaged coins, a partially burnt dictionary, and most notably, several shards of human bones. Well, these findings marked the first time human remains had ever been found at the site of the fire. All that was left now was to test whether the bones could have belonged to any of the missing solder children. Hunter sent the bones off to the Smithsonian Institute for testing, but the results would, like so many other things in this case, provide far more questions than answers. Oscar Hunter. Hello, Mr. Hunter. This is Jerry from the Smithsonian Institute. We just got back the lab results on those bones you sent in. And? The bones you sent us consist of four lumbar vertebrae belonging to one individual. Since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years. That's impossible. The oldest solder child left in the fire was only 14 at the time. The bones show greater skeletal maturation than one would expect from a 14-year-old boy. It is, however, possible, although not probable, for a boy 14 and a half years old to show 16 to 17 maturation. My god. There is something else you should know, though. The bones you sent us showed no evidence that they had ever been exposed to fire. No charring, no burns, nothing. Christ. Well, if those weren't the bones of one of the solder children, then whose the hell were they? Unclear. 
but it is very strange that no other bones were found in the excavation of the basement. One would expect to find the full skeletons of the five children, rather than only four vertebrae. Where did these mysterious bones come from? The Smithsonian's report would eventually conclude that the bones were most likely transposed in the dirt supply that George used to fill in the basement to create a memorial for the children. Although the Smithsonian's findings were certainly not as conclusive as the Sodders would have hoped, they did succeed in prompting two hearings at the Capitol in Charleston. But, predictably, the result of these hearings proved fruitless for the Sodders. Governor Oki L. Patterson and State Police Superintendent W.E. Burchett told the Sodders that their search was hopeless. The case was closed. George and Jenny had done all they could, writing to experts, pleading with state and local authorities. But now it became clear to the Sodders that if no one else would help them, they had no choice but to help themselves. And so the Sodders erected a billboard along Route 16, just at the edge of their property, pleading with anyone with any information on the fire to come forward. On Christmas Eve 1945, our home was set afire and five of our children, ages 5 through 14, were kidnapped. The officials blamed defective wiring, although lights were still burning after the fire started. The official report stated that the children died in the fire. However, no bones were found in the residue, and there was no smell of burning flesh before or after the fire. What was the motive of the law officers involved? What did they have to gain by making us suffer all these years of injustice? Why did they force us to accept those lies? George and Jenny Sauter asked these questions earnestly, but as they would soon come to learn, some questions are better left unanswered. Jenny, George, and their remaining children handed out flyers offering a $5,000 reward for any information leading to the recovery of their children. As the years wore on, they would increase this reward to $10,000. But the increased reward would do little to bring forth any useful information. For the next 20 years, tips of reported sightings would filter in from all over the country. George would always travel to investigate any and every lead. Unfortunately, these trips always ended the same way, with George returning home, disappointedly reporting to Jenny and the rest of the kids that the lead had proven unfounded. It wouldn't be until 1968, more than 20 years after the fire, that the Sodders would receive another significant break in the case. And this one would come in the form of a letter addressed to Jenny. The envelope, postmarked in Kentucky, bore no return address. Inside, Jenny found a photograph of a man in his mid-twenties. On the back, scrawled in jagged, messy handwriting, was a note. Louis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie, little boys A90132 or 35. Sounds like gibberish. And maybe it was, but as George and Jenny looked over the photograph... They couldn't help but to notice the obvious similarities between the young man in the picture and their oldest missing son, Louis. The man in the picture featured the same dark features, the same straight Italian nose. Was it possible? Could the young man in the photo really be their beloved Louis, sending a message home after all these years? And what was the meaning of those numbers at the end of the message? Years later, amateur sleuths would identify the number attached to the end of the message as the zip code for Palermo, Sicily. 
adding fuel to the theory that had routinely arisen in any discussion of the missing Sodder children in the years since George Sodder's death. Some have postulated that if the Sodder children were in fact taken, then it may have had something to do with George Sodder's connection to the Sicilian Mafia. As we discussed in our last episode, George Sodder was a very outspoken man on a variety of topics, but there was only one thing that George had ever refused to discuss, home. From the time that he first came to the United States until the time that he passed away, the only topic of conversation that was off limits for George was any discussion of his humble beginnings in Italy. Had George truly come to the United States on his own terms? Or had he been forced to come here in order to escape a deadly fate at the hands of the brutal Italian mob? Though there was likely no real credence to these theories, they nonetheless continued to persist. While those who ascribed to this theory pointed also to George's penchant for angering his fellow Italian compatriots by way of criticizing the Italian leader, Mussolini. But at the time that they received it, the Sodders could make little sense of the gibberish on the back. So George and Jenny hired a private investigator to investigate precisely where the mysterious letter had come from. But upon receiving payment from the Sodders, the P.I. took off for Kentucky in the hope of finding the letter's sender, only to never be seen or heard from again. George and Jenny immediately suspected foul play. Whoever had hid their children from them all these years simply hadn't wanted Lewis found, and their investigator had paid the price. But the truth is likely far less interesting. Rather than spend however many countless hours searching the Kentucky countryside for a man who may not even be there, the investigator likely just took the Sodder's payment and disappeared, without any intention of ever searching for Lewis or any of the missing children. The Sodders didn't have much time to dwell on this betrayal, however, as later that same year, in 1968, at the age of 73, George Sodder died. George was laid to rest in High Lawn Memorial Park, Oak Hill, in Fayetteville. Tragically, George died still hoping for a break in the case that would never come. After George's death, Jenny rarely left her Fayetteville property until the time of her own passing in 1989, the age of 86, the billboard at the edge of the property was taken down shortly after Jenny's death, but the question of what truly befell her five missing children hardly went down with it. Jenny's children and grandchildren continued the investigation in her honor, and as they did so, came up with theories of their own. Had George Sr. really been involved with the mob back in Italy before his immigration to the States? And what about the photograph and note sent to Jenny in 1968? Was that really Louis Sauter in the photo? And if any of the children were alive, why had they not reached out to their parents in the years since the fire? Unfortunately, nearly all of these conspiracy theories fall apart upon close inspection. Rumors of possible mob involvement were just that, rumors and nothing more. Unverified and impossible to prove. As the years passed and the theories about the fate of the kids grew more and more outlandish, the sad truth of what really happened to the five missing Sodder children became ever clearer. As 10 years turned into 20 and then 50 into 60, a single question undercut nearly every theory about the Sodder children surviving the fire. If any of the children had actually survived, 
Wouldn't they have reached out to George, Jenny, or any of their surviving siblings in the years since the fire? Sometimes the most obvious answer is the right one. And in the case of the missing Sodder kids, despite the countless suspicious actors involved and the many bizarre twists, the most plausible explanation of all still appears to be that Maurice, Louis, Jenny, Martha, and Betty Sodder all perished on that fateful Christmas Eve night. But just because it's plausible doesn't mean it's true. As long as so many of the details of that night remain a mystery, it's impossible to say conclusively what fate befell those missing children. Whatever happened to the children, one thing about this case seems clear. The fire at the Sodders' house was arson and not an accident. The misplaced ladder, the cut phone line, the lurking stranger named Johnson, and the ominous threats George received all point to the fact that foul play was involved. I agree. George had angered many people in Fayetteville over his Mussolini comments, and one of them must have felt the need to send a message. With a memory of World War II still fresh in people's minds, political tensions were at an all-time high. Perhaps on the night of Christmas Eve, too many glasses of eggnog encouraged an angered Italian patriot to take dramatic action. Though George and Jenny may have died not knowing the truth of what happened to their children, the search for answers as to the missing children's fate hardly ended there. On the contrary, George and Jenny's dogged refusal to accept the authorities' official conclusions about the fate of their children has for decades inspired amateur sleuths and conspiracy theorists alike. Which is exactly why today, some 70 years since the night of the fire, a single burning question remains just as relevant now as it was in the first waking hours of Christmas morning, 1945. What really happened to the Sodder children? You can find Unsolved Murders and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Daniel Ocho and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Osteen, Harris Markson, Sarah Miller-Cruz, and Steve Pinto. Unsolved Murders